Lex, what's so urgent? I decided to do it. Oh? Do what? Meet with the psychiatrist. Submit to a full battery of mental tests. Curious? Tell me what changed your mind. Because I was dealing from a position of fear. If there's one thing you can sniff out like a bloodhound, it's that. It's a gift, Lex. And it's useful. I know the only way I'm going to prove to you that I'm your rightful heir is to deal from a position of strength. I have nothing to hide. That would mean a lot to me, son. I figured you're my father, and you only have my best interest at heart. Who's the good doctor? Claire Foster. Oh, highly credentialed. She's published a couple of books. She'll be able to help you work through any problems. That island didn't make me crazy, Dad. Oh, crazy? No. No, of course not. But it'll be good to have that in writing, won't it? And Lex, when you're rich, you're not crazy. You're eccentric. Somebody save me indeed. Hello and welcome to Farm to Fable, a Smallville rewatch fan cast. I am your forever host, Michael, and I'm also the host of the RPG Academy podcast, where I talk mostly about role-playing games, but all tabletop gaming in general. I also organize a three-day gaming convention held in Dayton, Ohio, each November. Before we get started, please be advised that Farm to Fable may include adult language and reference adult behavior. Please consider us PG-13 in regards to content acceptability for your young ones. Also, this is your spoiler warning. While we will focus on each episode week to week, our discussions may and likely will reference the entire series run and the wider Superman mythos. You can email our show at smallvillefancast at gmail.com with any comments, concerns, or questions. Please follow us on Twitter at Farm2Fable and join our Facebook group page at Smallville Farm to Fable. With all of that out of the way, let's meet today's co-host. My name is Maria Franz. It's good to be back. And we got to talk about season three, episode four. But I just want to say, oh, I really love the end of season two and jumped right into season three. So I'm happy to be starting an early episode. Uh, yeah, it's good to be back. It's what is time? I don't know. I'm here. What is time? Yeah, it is, it's great to have you back. I absolutely love having you on the show anytime we can. And an extra special thank you. We had a, a hiccup with the original episode four co-host. They're having um, medical situation. Nothing tragic, but urgent they have to deal with. Um, so you agreed to jump in, take this episode and switch with them later in the season. Uh, so I really appreciate you doing this on shorter notice. Yeah, absolutely. I thought it was a good intro back into season three for this because for a while I've been thinking, you know, you got to finish season two. You got to catch up for your episode. And I kept putting on the back burner and then you messaged me and I was like, let's jump into it. We, we got to do this. That was a good kick in the butt for me. <laughs> Fantastic. And I also want to say you give us ample time. <laughs> I do try. And I, I'll throw it to you, we've actually got several new co-hosts coming up this season. Uh, several people have listened to the show and, and, and hear me al always say, hey, if you want to be on the show, reach out. People have. Uh, so, again, that's kind of how this is working. If you like what we do and want to participate, let me know. More than likely, I'll find a spot for you. Uh, but, again, again it's, all, it's awesome to have you here. But we're going to start, as we always do, with our Pass the Torch question. So, last week, Al had asked, how would you reintroduce Van McNulty? who was the villain of the week in our previous episode, 
in a future episode of Smallville as a hero, sort of like a take of Marvel's The Punisher. I really want to thank Al for this question because um, it's perfect for me because I spent the entire time of that episode talking to my TV, just being like, Van cannot be reformed. This kid cannot be reformed. He will never change. And <laughs> and then I read the question and I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> I wasn't very sympathetic, but now I can change perspective and maybe. Yeah, I actually asked my fiance for help on this one. He laughed when he figured out I had to answer those questions because I was such a Van hater. And <laughs> Tom's idea was Van is in the psychiatric ward and someone affected by the media rocks uses their powers to save Van. I don't buy it because Van killed his best friend. So like the loved one or really close person I'm iffy on. If, hmm. He's such a jerk. I don't even want to like him. Yeah. Um, I think it would have to be really personal for Van to change. I think he would have to be infected by meteor rocks himself and develop a power. And it could be a, a situation where maybe I can see Van changing if he is forced into a situation where he has to become aka what he calls a freak. Then he's forced in that situation. He has to empathize and maybe in that way he could become a Punisher or a Punisher-like mm -hmm. character. Um, I kind of struggled as you because I don't think he's a, a likable character. And I think the classic sort of the expected answer is is along the lines of what we what we already discussed that you know he is saved by someone who is infected and they see the value. But I just want to do something different. So the only thing I could come up with, and again I had a much longer time line to think about this question than you did, uh, was to do something like maybe Zatanna puts him under a spell or some other magical or other, you know, influence. So he's not doing it out of the goodness of his heart. He is being compelled to be a hero against his own will. So he is both a hero and a victim who, when they become introduced with like the heroes like Superman again, Superman might end up saving him from this compulsion they're under, but then that allows him to go back to doing his evil way. So you got a very morally gray kind of situation, which are the best kinds of Superman stories, in my opinion, where, of course, Superman's going to help this person, but by doing so, did they actually make the world a worse place? Ooh, I really like that. That's what a couple extra weeks of thinking can get you. But, uh, <laughs> with that, we will move on. So now we're going to open our Smallville yearbook and see who our notable guest stars are. Hey, Clark. Look who came to check up on you. Catherine Isabel as Sarah Conroy and Christopher Shire as Nicholas Conroy. And we also have John DeSantis as the Traveler, which I guess that must be like the um, the stunt double, body double, when they're just in like the weird cape and stuff. Uh, anyway, so now we're going to grab a copy of this week's Daily Planet and check the bylines to see who brought us this episode. I mean, that's a story that could land you a byline on the front page of the Daily Planet. We are here today to discuss Season 3, Episode 4, Slumber. The date of original airing was October 22nd, 2003. The character of Superman was created by Jerry Seigel and Joe Schuster, and Smallville was created by Alfred Goff and Miles Miller. The writers for this episode, uh, Drew Z. Greenberg, is the credited writer. And the director for the episode is Terrence O'Hara. So, Maria, are you now ready to explore the Kawaji Caves to get a glimpse of where we came from as well as where we may be going? Yes, I am. All right, let's do it. So in this episode, Clark dreams that he is being pursued by a frightened young girl who needs his help. 
And that's great and all, but it doesn't tell us what we really need to know. So let's dig a little deeper into these caves and ask the important questions. Does this episode feature a vehicle crashed or otherwise destroyed? Most definitely. Does this episode feature someone falling unconscious for any reason? Yes. Does this episode feature someone in a hospital bed? Yes. Does this episode feature Clark telling or showing someone besides his forever crushed Lana his powers and abilities? Yes. Follow-up, does that person die, lose their memory, or otherwise become unable to share this knowledge, or do they become a confidant of Clark? None of the above for one, and a confidant for the other. That seems to be happening a lot in these episodes. Uh, Does this episode feature Clark using his powers irresponsibly? Yes. Does Clark casually break and enter a business or residence? Not a residence, but he breaks into a medicine cabinet. Eh, It's close enough. Does this episode feature a moment where a character travels a seemingly long way to have a short conversation and then leave? Of course it does. (laughs) Does this episode feature a conversation between two people where one person has their back to the other and is weirdly talking over the shoulder? Of course it does. And was the person talking weirdly over their shoulder Lex? Yes, in a dream and then later on in reality. Of course. Does this episode feature a particularly thirsty moment for one or more of our characters? If dreams count, then hell yeah. (laughs) Yes. Thirsty. Does this episode feature a cheeky bit of dialogue that hints at or directly references the wider Superman mythos? No. I didn't see any either. Does this episode feature a moment with a needle drop wherein a contemporary song perfectly sums up a character's thoughts and or desires? Sort of. There's a meta through line with the entire episode because all of the songs in this episode come from R.E.M. I mean, I love and hate that at the same time. I'll be honest with you. Same. I will talk about it later. Okay. Uh, does this episode feature a classic small but leap of logic wherein the characters jump to a correct conclusion around who or what is behind some mysterious event with little to no actual information to base such conclusions? Holy shit, yes. It's impressive. <laughs> yeah, it's... Ooh, yeah. <laughs> All right. So now that we have a clear roadmap of where we're going, let's use our x-ray vision and look closely at this week's episode. Clark and Lana skiddy dip in Crater Lake in a surreal scene. But before things get too hot and heavy, a young girl screams and emerges from the woodline. Clark rushes to her aid, but is helpless when she's pulled into the earth by a monster. All right, Maria. So you binged a whole bunch of Smallville to get ready for this episode. And I'm going to honor that sacrifice. Or, you know, maybe it's maybe, maybe you loved it. So what did you think about this episode? Anything in particular? I should say this, uh, the opening scene here. Anything you want to uh, talk about to start with? Uh, sure. What Michael's talking about is to just catch up, which, again, I had months to catch up and I just didn't. So I watched six episodes Saturday night and then the next three or four Sunday, and I had a blast personally. I got to finish all of season two pretty much in a go and start season three. So I'm going to just selfishly probably pushing a little end of season two because I got no one else to talk to about it uh, (laughs) into this episode but this episode specifically season three episode four was a nice different pace change to what we've been seeing especially opening with Cal and Metropolis the drama and frankly terror happening back home with Smallville like with the part um with the farm in limbo I don't know what park I'm talking about but Martha losing the child and such it was just so much so honestly the opening of this episode was a nice change of pace i really liked it it also kind of brought us back to the whole small town kids in high school kind of feel because you know what we could forget it for a moment okay there's like the whole three month stint but let's just forget about it it's like a cliche somewhere where the kids are hot they're at the lake 
They're going to go skinny dipping right before we get back into school, except they're already in school. What is time in Smallville? I don't, I don't, I I don't know. Maybe they, I don't, actually, how much school did Clark miss? Uh, No, it happened over the summer break. So he conveniently spent his entire summer in Metropolis and missed no school time, at least not enough that they mention it anywhere. Gotcha. That's what I assume. But yeah, it's. Yeah, at the beginning of this episode, as as I mentioned, there is some skinny dipping. Sorry for yes. that spoiler alert. So yeah, as said, there's some skinny dipping. It's a cute, cheeky scene where Clark just wants to cool off at the lake, and Lana, girl of his dreams, of course, shows up course. right there, which 50-50 with this show, is it a dream or is it reality? Because they're always bumping into each other. Right. And that's the thing about, I think there's sort of that meta thing happening here that I I think they, they walk a line, and I personally think they pull it off. Because rewatching the episode, of course, this is a dream. It is 100% apparent. Why would you ever think it's not? But at the same time, this is a Smallville episode. So it is not above the writers of the show to have Clark go to Crater Lake and be the only one there. And then have Lana show up and be the only other person there. That's not that unusual of a thing that could happen. And their relationship, this sort of will they, won't they, you know, sexual high school flirtation stuff. I mean, it's kind of a little forward of Lana to to suggest a skinny dip, but at the same time, she has been the one that's been pushing for the rekindling of the relationship ever since, you know, Clark kind of ran away from her and her mind not knowing what was going on. So it it walks the line of just enough Smallville plausible, not real plausible, but Smallville plausible, that it actually effectively kind of makes you think, is this real or not? Until we find out for sure that it's not. And there is that, we mentioned the REM. So we start off right off the bat with REM's imitation, or excuse me, imitation of life, which is a big clue if you're familiar enough with the music to recognize what that song is, who, you know, who sings it and what it kind of means. I was not. So I didn't catch that either until I was like, oh, now I understand what's happening. I agree too that they did a great job because at the beginning of the episode, you know, you see the scene, this has to be a dream because... Lana's instigating, but I believe in earlier episodes, I know season three just started, but even first, second, third, Lana is doing more of the initiative from what I've seen. I've noticed that she's standing up for herself because I think it was in the, she's standing up for herself in the first episode where that's right, they're in the club, everyone knows them as Cal, and that moment where Lana's like, I love you. Right. I'm not going to give up on you. I love you. I think that is a moment in the beginning of the season that solidifies, you know what? Lana's going to fight for what she wants, and she's going to let people know, like, look, she's independent. She can do things on her own. She doesn't always need help, and she has agency. So there were moments on the dock where, wait, maybe this is real. And then (laughs) that thirsty scene where Lana stared at Clark's chest for, like, five seconds where Clark takes off his shirt because he's ready to jump in the lake cool off it's a real hot summer and it was not subtle in that scene they just no, pointed the camera at, at her face and she just beamed at his chest yeah i mean can't blame her but at the same time it was i mean i would say that was ogling i don't know what the true definition of ogling is but i think if you looked up ogling it would maybe this picture might be what you would see i think you're correct that she was absolutely ogling him and just thirsty obviously audio format right now but it was freaking hysterical <laughs> she just oh my god it was wow she was like yep that's what i like yes that's why that's what that's what we're here for that's what we pay money for 
Um, so this is Crater Lake, which we have seen before in the show, but I don't think it was actually this particular lake. I think the first time it was like a matte screen painting. Uh, and as best I could tell, this is actually Bunsen Lake, but I'm not 100% sure on anyone listening who knows better than I. That's what I, my Googling, that's what I found This was the actual location for this shot. Find out Clark is a boxers guy. I don't know if we knew that before, but it's pretty definitive now that that's, he, he swings boxers. Yeah. So far in the show, it's just kind of him being shirtless. This is the first time we've done a swimming outside skinny dipping kind of scene. Every other time they're at the, I believe they're at the high school pool where they're in swimsuits and such. Yeah, just last episode, the Bay McNulty one, we start off with Lana in a bathing suit at the, at the pool, which was closed at the time. But we already covered that last time. I won't talk about <laughs> it again. So they get, you know, again, they kind of get cutesy. They jump in the water. They have a little bit of a splash fight, which kind of aggressive, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah. At first, well, the the fight starts because Lana jumps in first after saying, hey, no peeking. She gets undressed, jumps in the lake. Clark then turns around and it's his turn to strip. And this time... Lana does have her back turn. He jumps in, but Clark stays underwater for what? I mean, Clark stays underwater for several seconds. It's enough time to scare the shit out of Lana. He comes up as a joke, and Lana's like, that's not funny, splashes water, and they start a splash fight. But it didn't come off as like, oh, friendly, flirting, splashing. Lana was in to win that one. Yeah, she looked angry, which, I mean, I guess she was angry because he played that trick on her but it, yeah like her her facial features kind of reacted someone who's really mad not someone who's like flirted i mean you, she's in the scene naked you know a foot or so from a naked dude uh just seemed like a didn't quite line up to me for some reason yeah it did not come off as flirty but if i were lana i would have reacted the same way i would have been real pissed and i that is very my energy of i would have like started a splash fight too to make a point made as opposed to flirting. And in Lana's defense, someone did try to drown her the episode before. So I was like, wow, we've really let a lot of time pass on that one, eh? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, not that long ago, she almost drowned a different time. So I could see water issues with, with Lana for sure. And then also at an episode at the end of season two where they go back to her childhood friend. Yes, that's that the one. Drowned. Yeah, she gets pushed in the river and almost drowns. So. Yeah. So let's leave Lana alone for a second oh by the way i'm real glad i did not agree to that episode because i am terrified of realistic dolls oh, oh no okay <laughs> that, that <laughs> so, could have been bad it was watching that episode at 10 p.m and i was like oh no <laughs> i have to quit the podcast make oh. it through it <laughs> nice uh so we get a little close uh you know we're about to get some kissy time i wrote kisses interrupt us as a young girl comes running out the woodline and just screaming, just sort of generically for like, help, help, you know, help me. I always said there should be nothing between us. No, there's not. We sort of cut, and then Clark's down in front of her. He's fully dressed again. He's completely dry, which, again, for me, walks that line of, is this a dream, or is that just Clark being Clark, because he's super fast and, you know, all that kind of stuff. We don't see what happened with Lana, so presumably she would have seen him do this. So, again, it's still that surreal moment. 
But there's a young girl. We don't know who she is. She seems to be afraid of something. And then she just gets pulled into the ground from underneath like a sinkhole. Clark sort of, I think, quickly actually tries to punch the ground and find her. And then the, the cold open just ends. And I think this is one of the few cold opens, too, where it doesn't really end. Like, it ends with no real resolution of what's going on. Because as we pick up the next scene, I think he's still asleep. Like, we, we, we still continue the dream for a little while longer. Uh, so any other final thoughts about this uh, cold open? Anything we didn't touch on? Anything you want to circle back to? Yeah, what you mentioned about the scene being rough, because again, you see the girl screaming, and Mealy cuts to her running. We see what she's wearing, what she looks like, and Clark shows up also fully dressed. Like It's not like Clark is just in his boxers or something. He has a t-shirt on, his jeans with the belt, I'm assuming, shoes and everything, and... I'm so perceptive. I actually didn't take that as a clue as this was a dream. I was like, wow, I guess he can just dry his hair and everything in a speed run. Like, I didn't really question the logic of that. But uh, and yeah, after this, it cuts right to it cuts to he's in the farmhouse with his parents. And another thing I thought interesting about this is it felt a little more fantasy like. Obviously, the show's fiction. We have a superhero, but it's more of a sci-fi kind of feel. I mean, and it's not kind of, it is a sci-fi feel. Our main character is an alien. And (laughs) the end of season two, the end of season two felt a little X-Files-like to me, which might have been why I enjoyed it so much. Because, you know, back to that episode where Lana's childhood friend ended up being unfortunately clone and it's a highly unethical situation but that felt like some x-files stuff happening and there was a couple other episodes too where it got that vibe it got that feeling of the spooky stuff happening but this feels more like a fantasy with the big robed um you could say wizard-like creature yeah disappearing into the pit reminds me of a, the uh the princess bride mm-hmm. yep with the uh R-O-U- sand. The lightning sand and the R-O-U-S's. Rats oh, I don't believe those size. exist. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I thought that was also an interesting part of it. Again, different pace. And, and that like fantasy-like feeling also comes up with the lighting. Because for this entire intro, another hint to this is not real. The lighting in the opening of this episode is very, very warm. It's abnormally warm. Like, obviously, you're outside of the summer. The sun's out. You're going to get more of this kind of like amber look but did you notice that with the start of it a a little bit but on rewatch there's a later scene and i think this is like halfway through where the young girl you know against spoilers we find out she's coming into his dreams there's one where she comes and visits him in the loft and in that scene it almost seems like they got like vaseline on the lens like i know there's probably a technical term for that sort of diffuse lighting but it's like everything's sort of blurry almost out of focus and then i really noticed how weird the lighting was for that scene this one just seems heightened, like, again, like a surreal look. It's not, it doesn't look fake. It just looks off. I don't have the vocabulary to say it better than that. It's kind of like the saturation is heightened a little more than it normally would be. Initially, at the start of the episode, it is possible because the show is much older and we have newer devices. And then also any remastering that might have been done. I'm watching on Hulu. I did have a moment of, like, maybe it's just old TV show on a newer TV and format, but I think it was a purposeful moment to just help. I think it was purposeful by production. That way you could see the difference just very subtly. So again, it goes back to 
you got elements. It's very much Smallville, but other elements of, well, this could be a dream. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a note here about some back behind the scenes. There was a body double used for the scene of Lana when the, we sort of what Clark looks over his shoulder and we the camera pulls back and we see her from a distance jumping in and diving. That was not actually Kristen Crook. And in the shots where Kristen is in the water, she is wearing a skin colored bikini to hide her naughty bits. Oh, I'm glad they did that because there was a moment of like, wow, you can. This is a clear lake. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. All right, so we will move into our first act. If you don't mind, would you go ahead and read the summary for me, please? Absolutely. In what is eventually revealed to be a continuing series of dreams, Clark gets a new truck, Lana says she'll wait for him as long as it takes, Sarah is again taken by the monster, Petey tells Clark he missed his history exam and flunked, Chloe is taken down the wall of weird, and Lex discovers Clark is powered. After another run-in with Sarah and the Traveler, Clark wakes up to find he's been asleep for almost two days and that their new neighbors in Lana's old house is named Conroy. And with Conroy, there is a teenage daughter in the house. Yeah, so we get almost the entire first act before we truly get the reveal that this is all a dream. And again, at the end of the first, the cold open, I think you have to know by the time the monster shows up and she disappears that there's something going on. But I think it's a pretty interesting decision by the writers to continue it on because the next scene opens in very classic Smallville Clark talking to his parents. It's like, yeah, I used Max Revision and I, I, you know, I punched holes in the ground and I still couldn't find her. That's something that would fit in any episode of Smallville, not knowing yet that it's still in a dream. I think for me, it's the new truck. I think the new truck is when I was like, okay, a hundred percent, this is not real. Because just even the way Jonathan was talking, it just didn't fit Jonathan. Like the whole... I don't know, there's something about it, again, just seemed off, but I think that was intentional, and I think it's really well done on the rewatch. I really, really appreciated it. Uh, but before we get into the specifics, I, what I, I think the most interesting thing about this episode for me is we get to see a lot of what Clark is dreaming before Sarah shows up. So we see Clark having, you know, maybe a typical high school boy dream about a girl he likes in a, you know, semi-sexual situation. Then we have the dream of his parents giving him a, a truck. He has a dream about Chloe taking down the wall of weird, like stopping, investigating that part of the thing in Smallville. Then he goes to Lex, and Lex knows his secret and then is angry. So I think we can just assume that these are all things that Clark either fears or wants in his life. Is there any, anything in there that, that stood out to you as like, interesting, like, oh, that's a pretty interesting insight into Clark. I think fell in the history exam is very classic, you know, uh, dream. I think we can kind of discount that one a little bit. But relationship with, with Lana, the, the new truck, in particular, Lex's reaction to knowing his secret, and then Chloe taking down the wall of weird. I think those are the two most interesting. But I want to see what you thought of that. So when watching this, I was duped for a decently long time on it not being a dream and being reality. Mm -hmm. A little embarrassed to say that, but hey, the episode worked for me because like you said, like going into the farmhouse, conversation did feel really real. And I mean, hindsight, but seeing that new truck, I should have known yeah. the truck. Okay, I'll get to in a second. <laughs> uh, something that I uh, to answer your question. All of the people in Clark's life in his dream also had a confidence that weren't, we haven't been seeing. And I just thought of this while you were talking about how everything he kind of wants seems to be in this dream. But 
well, first, it is the final part of the dream, but Lex's conviction. Because mm-hmm. this whole time, we're now on season three, and Lex will still dance around a topic because it is important to Lex that Clark tell him the truth. Lex doesn't want to be a Luther about it. Like, Lex is a Luther about everything in his life, and he's trying so hard not to be one. And it, it, it's so important to Lex that he doesn't have to manipulate Clark. Although, he's got the room we learned at the end of season two and all these other things. But he just wants Clark to tell him. So for Lex to just step up and have that conviction, be like, I'm going to find out. I'm going to push you out of your comfort zone. I'm done catering to you. I'm going to find out whether or not you're lying to me. Like, that was really interesting. And then you have Chloe where Chloe just had a real mature moment. And I'm sorry, I can't think of another word because I am implying that she's immature most of the time. I mean, she is a teenager, but how Chloe spoke about the weird of wall coming down was so, so like, yeah, this is believable, but. Did Sarah Conroy tell you? Highly doubtful since I've never met anyone with that name. Well, she's a new student, I think. I saw her in the woods and I just saw her in the hallway. She's definitely a candidate for Wall of Weird. Well, that's too bad, since the Wall of Weird has been retired. Chloe, who did this? I did. It's time to leave childish pursuits behind. You're not the only one who grew up this summer. What, is this a different character development they're going with Chloe? Because she was like, well, you know, it's time. I need to do mature stuff. I'm just going to do the facts. And I believed all of that. But then looking back, it was like, that doesn't sound like Chloe at all. What the hell? And then, okay, I guess we didn't really see it with Petey because Petey was just telling Clark he flunked their history class. But even with Lana, it was another moment where she had more conviction. It's just another moment where someone in Clark's life is going up to him and telling him how it is because Lana just goes, I'm willing to wait for you. You know, you're not allowed to tell me how I need to feel what makes me feel unsafe and what doesn't. I know what I want. It's you. I will be here waiting. And it was a moment of like, wow, damn, girl, like you, you told him. And that was some confidence. That was amazing. And but it's not really Lana. So their dream versions are so close to them. But then there's that like 10 percent of wait, who are you? Is -hmm. this character development because it's the start of a new season or is this a dream? Yep, I I definitely uh, agree. I think the the thing with Lex, again, I still think that's probably the most interesting. And I have said many times before on the show and just in general that I think Clark should have told Lex. And I think this was the show catering to me, the audience saying, we know that some of you think that but we're telling you that it's too late now. Like we by season three, even if Clark does tell Lex now, it's too late. Kind of let let go of that as a as a something that you're striving for because it's too late. There's too much water under the bridge that even if Clark confides in him now, it probably would go the wrong way. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's what the writers were thinking, but that's how I read it now. You know, 20 years after the show came out the first time, uh, as someone who's doing this this podcast, he's like, I wish Clark would just would told Lex. I think this was the show saying that bridge is already behind us. Uh, you know, stop, stop pining for that. But I don't know. I can see that. And I think something in season three that gives weight to that theory is when Lex is speaking with Clark about how he never gets sick. He hasn't been sick since before the meteor. And before that, his dad was like, eh, you had asthma. But that was a moment where Lex was confiding in Clark about something highly personal. And Clark didn't say anything. So I can see that 
framing up when, you know, Clark had a moment to be like, actually, it's not you. It is me. Because that feels like a further moment of deception where he's in- almost encouraging Lex to go mm-hmm. down that path of Lex thinking, hey, maybe maybe it is me and my health that saved me on that bridge. And this whole time I've been looking outside instead of inward. And Clark not doing anything consequently. Did I say that word correctly? Oh, who cares? <laughs> um, The consequence of Clark saying nothing of that is leading Lex on. Mm-hmm. And actually... Because of that scene, I thought Lex was going to stab himself with the samurai sword. Oh, wow. Because, is that true? I don't know. I've kind of been tired. I haven't had caffeine in like 24 hours. That's my fault. But with the samurai sword, I had a moment of like, oh, shit, is Lex going to try to cut or stab himself to prove that he might be invincible? Because let's, because we know as the audience, oh, my God, he's not. Right. So him attacking Clark was a little bit of a surprise for me as well. I thought I was going to go in a different direction. Uh, so to walk through that, just kind of in the order to make sure we don't miss anything Im- important. Um, the family gives Clark a new truck. It, it's partially paid for by Lex giving the money in the last episodes. And Clark sees that Jonathan is okay with that. And again, that's something we kind of want. We see that Clark wants. He wants Jonathan to accept Lex for who Lex is and not read into all of his you know, uh, gifts. And I think you had the notes about that. The wave uh, it was just like, almost cheesy commercial level of, you know, they're standing there waving at Clark as Clark drives off in the truck. We have the scene with Lana where she talks about, it's cool that he ran off to help that girl. Of course, no big deal. I'll wait for you. Uh, And I think then we hear another REM song, Everybody Hurts. And this, I believe, is when um, Sarah shows up and then the red monster guy shows up again and takes her away. And that's when PD shows up and says, "You, you missed the history exam. You failed. Then Clark goes to talk to Chloe, and I got to say that my favorite line of the episode is something came up at the lake, and I'm just like, yeah, it did. Uh, but then the other girl showed up, and it kind of ruined everything. Um, that's when Chloe talks about taking down the wall weird. When we go to Lex, Lex gives him, and that's the, basically I think we're all caught up here where Lex confronts Clark and tries to hit him with a sword, which breaks, shattering, revealing to Lex the truth that you know Clark is special, but of course this is still all a dream. Um, and then Clark drives home. And when he gets home, Sarah is there again. The traveler, the monster is there again. They fight and Clark actually loses this fight. And then that's when he wakes up and we learn that he's actually been asleep for a day and a half. So as far as counting goes, I'm not counting this as Clark going unconscious because that seems to me like he just went to sleep normally, but then he was asleep an abnormal amount of time. So I'm not counting that as going unconscious. So anything else? Because we kind of covered a big picture, and then I wanted to go through an individual. But is there anything we didn't cover you want to circle back to about this uh, about this act? Yeah, sorry. I meant I, was, I went and being like, we're going to do it in order, and then puzzle pieces everywhere. But 36 hours. Clark was asleep for 36 hours. Can you imagine? So, and they oh, just man, left What's the there. longest you've ever been asleep? Do you know? 18 hours. Okay. Was it, and again, I don't mean like drug-induced, like recreation, but like, was it medication? Was it like a hospital situation where you just like dog-tired and took a nap? Oh, yeah. No worries. Um, It was freshman year of college. It was my first time going back home from college and got into the house about six. My mom had dinner ready for me. I ate a big plate of steak and rice in about five minutes, laid down at 6.30, and woke up the next day at 12.30 p.m. Oh, wow. So... I wasn't on any medication, wasn't partying. I mean, 
I probably took the bus. Yeah, I had to have taken the bus home, which was probably five to six hours. But I think I just slept off the first quarter of my freshman <laughs> college year. Um, and my mom's friend called and was like, oh, your youngest daughter is back home from college. Like, how how is she? And my mom goes, I, I don't really know. My mom's friend was like, what do you mean? And my mom was like, she came home. She ate a steak. She went to bed 20 minutes later. And she's still asleep. What? And my mom's like, she's still asleep. Like, yeah. And then I woke up at 1230 and my parents were like, are you okay? I was like, yeah, I feel amazing because I slept <laughs> this, 18 effing hours. This is great. And uh, that's my record. And I'm, I'm happy to say I was not sick. That we know of. Yeah, true. <laughs> I've had a few bouts that are probably the 12 to, to 15 hour range. I don't, I don't know specifically the numbers, but... Uh, my first real job out of college, I worked at Target as a security officer, uh, the, the security manager. And part of my job was to basically m- monitor employees for theft. And so I went to work early because in retail. So I had to get there like at six o'clock in the morning. I worked a full shift, uh, which again is like 10 to 12 hours uh, in retail. And then at the, like the very end of my shift, I found something that indicated that someone worked in the overnight team was stealing. So I basically just stayed at work worked overnight, uh, interviewed that employee the next morning at eight o'clock after I had caught them stealing, uh, processed everything I had to do at the time, you know, all the paperwork, blah, blah, blah. So I ended up working for like 28 hours or something straight without literally any breaks whatsoever. And I went home and I'm pretty sure I just called, like I just didn't have to work the next day and slept about that. And then in... I think I was in college as well. I've had history of kidney stones. I think I've mentioned it here before. It's just something I've dealt with my whole life. And over Christmas break, probably sophomore year, I just had a horrible bout. And I was on like the really good medications. And so it wasn't true sleep, but I basically was unconscious for like four days. Like I'd wake up, they they gave me some food, I'd go to the bathroom, I'd go back in bed and pass out. So it was like 36 to 48 hours. I was only semi-conscious for like 12 hours total throughout that. Even that was probably groggy. I don't have a true number, so I think your 18 hours probably has me beat. That was a long tangent. You just wanted to comment on 36 hours. My apologies. That's an, that's an insane four days we can talk about later. Wow. Um, also, I, yeah, I just, sorry, you can cut this part out, but I was just like, I like answered your question really quickly, like 18 hours. So I like, I kind of sprung that and you of like, yes, I know the longest I've been awake and it is exactly 18 hours. <laughs> yeah, I was a little surprised that you had that number in your back pocket. I'll be yeah, honest. Yeah, you were kind of like, oh, shit. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry about that. Like, in hindsight, it's kind of weird of like, yes, I've been asleep for 18 hours. What's your record? That is just a weird thing to know. Okay, great. (laughs) And then uh, last thing, I said I'd talk about it. That truck, that, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, folks, it's a bright blue truck. It is not really a farm truck either. See, like, the truck really should have been like Maria. At this point, you gotta know it's not a dream because, and no, no, no even, like, variant of Jonathan Kent would buy that truck. (laughs) Thank you. Um, It's not practical for the farm at all, which is what really got it for me. Like, well, first off, Jonathan's like, son, we got you something. And I audibly, like, I am the peanut gallery when I watch Smallville. I will just talk to my TV. Um, Thankfully, my fiance finds it amusing. But when Jonathan was like, son, we got you something, I just went, oh, what what did I say? 
before Jonathan even said it's a truck, I was like, this better not be a new truck for this kid. He's gonna wreck it. <laughs> we go outside. It's this it's this blue truck. The bed does not make sense for farm work. No, it's uh, like way too high. It's yeah, the, first off, the bed is raised, but what I love about the truck being raised is Tom Welling is so stinking tall. It doesn't really like look like a big deal. Like for me, pretty sure my shoulders are at where my like foot needs to go to step into that thing. Uh, my father-in-law yeah. has a raised truck and I can get into that. No worries. It's, but like this truck is tall in the episode. And also I don't think it even has a real tailgate. I think it just has like one of those mesh things, which also doesn't make sense in my opinion for farm yeah. work, but it's never actually worked a farm, but I agree with you. It doesn't seem practical. Yeah. It's a very flashy truck. It reminds me of some decked out Jeeps that I see driving around where I live. And if you own a Jeep, I am not shaming you. Decked out Jeeps are cool. I'm just saying it reminds me of like a decked out, very clean Jeep, as mm-hmm. opposed to a Wrangler that's clearly for mudding. And um, shit, if you own a Jeep, I'm, I swear to God, I'm not making fun of you. I'm so sorry. I've dug this hole. Yeah, I, if you have a clean Jeep, that's not what I mean. I'm going to stop talking about cars now. <laughs> but yeah, I do think that the, the the truck thing is a very big clue that it's a dream. And then, I mean, like, they could have straight up had Petey say, why are you naked? And then have Clark be naked in school, uh, to be very clear. But the whole, you missed your test, you failed the class. I mean, I've, I've literally had dreams just like that where I'm like trying to get to class and they're like, oh, today's the final, but you haven't been here all semester. Like I've had those dreams, but they're still walking the line of, is this a dream or not? And again, on a rewatch, it's so obvious, but the first time through, it's just enough weird that it could be Smallville weird, not this is a dream weird. And I'm I'm just so glad that they went for it. Like I could very much see this where like half of the first cold open was a dream and then we know. Or the full cold open was, but we, we start with act one, Clark waking up and knowing it's a dream. I love how they push this all the way through, basically to the end of the first act. So two out of our five, or I guess six acts total, because there's five in a cold open, is, you know, in this dream that we don't know it's a dream. I just think that's kind of a bold, honest, honestly, a bold choice. It also shows what certain people think about Clark, whether or not you believe this is a dream, because bless Clark, you and I clearly don't have faith in his academics. Uh, just personally, <laughs> Clark forgetting to take a history test and like missing and skipping. I was like, yeah, that tracks. This, he would yeah. do this. He's, I love Clark, but he doesn't prioritize very well when it comes right. to school. He's My, definitely smart, but he's also irresponsible. He kind of reminds me of Harry Potter with the school stuff. Like, he's not a Hermione. He's more of like a Harry Potter where he's just, like, if he wasn't the chosen one, he'd be getting C's. If he wasn't <laughs> Kal-El, I don't know what would be going on for him. Um, oh, and my nitpicky thing, though, is for y'all listening. So Petey's like, dude, you missed this test. It was really important. You've now failed the class. Well, that's weird. Like, you miss one test and you fail a class? That's that's a little harsh. Well, friends, that test was worth 50% of his overall grade. And that bugs me. What? That's ridiculous. Which was another moment of Maria. This is a dream. But I've right. never had a test or assignment be worth more than 25% of my overall grade. So the fact that PD was like, this is worth 50% of our grade. I'm like, that's bullshit. What? <laughs> Who is your teacher? That is so... I would... I, as a parent, I would have like really complained about that. And that would actually be kind of unfair to the teacher. It's not my job. But like, that's... Like 50%? Yeah. Why would you I set can't... someone up for that kind of failure? 
I can't remember if I had any classes in high school or college with with a single score being worth that much of a grade. I don't know. It it didn't stick out to me as like like you didn't hit me like it did you. So maybe it's not that far off for me. But I agree, it's unusual. But it didn't didn't hit me the same way it did you. But yeah, dear listener, well, this will be our first call to action. If you have ever had a grade in any of your classes that would have been for 50% of your overall score, let us know. Email smallvillefancast at gmail.com. And if you're comfortable, let me know what school district that is. Oh, yeah. Maria will complain for you. Um, And something else I'll say about the dreams is I went to Catholic school for 10 years. To this day... I still have dreams of forgetting an assignment in Catholic school. That stuff is permanently ingrained in my subconscious. If you are also like this, it's good to know I'm not alone. But yeah. like I, again, like actually I also failed the class in high school. Mm-hmm. I still have dreams about failing that class. Uh, unfortunately for my subconscious, stress dreams and academic stress go hand in hand. It's so I, <laughs> yeah, just. I feel like a lot of people say that, but yeah, fun fact, I, to this day, will have dreams that I'm re-failing that class in high school. I'm so sorry, Mrs. Craig. But at least you get to wake up. Oh, thank God. Yes. All right. So in our second act, Clark is afraid to go back to sleep. Jonathan, of course, wants him to be careful and to stay away from the neighbors. Lana stops by to bring him his homework, and he is abnormally forthcoming to Lana about his dream. They go to see Sarah together and find out that she is in a coma being cared for by her uncle. All right. So, I mean, it kind of makes sense. Clark is up early the next day. He's, you know, he's actually still up. He didn't sleep at all the night before. He's afraid to go back to sleep. Jonathan, of course, is worried. And, you know, I think it's pretty clear that Clark wants to go check out these new neighbors who he just learned about. And Jonathan's like, no, don't go. And, of course, he's going to go. One of my favorite things I want to mention that they're doing chores. And once again, Clark is easily doing uh, manual labor. It's one of my favorite little things they do in the show to show his strength very easily. It just always makes me laugh every time. And then Lana just sort of shows up. Like, where did she come from? Because we're not in the dream anymore, but it's like she teleported next to him somehow. That did make sense because, well, her timing was very quick, but she was bringing his homework. Mm. So right. I know why she came, but it seemed like she just sort of appeared like they're in a farm. Like he has pretty good 360 degree per, you know, perception if he's looking around. And it just seemed like he was like startled by her showing up. Maybe I guess he's tired. Maybe that was playing in. He's, you know, still heavy lidded, trying not to sleep. But I was just like, where the bleep did she come from? Actually. I. Hmm. Well, he was tired, and even Lana was like, wow, you look tired, but didn't she just walk up with the assignments? She didn't drive up, because every other scene, she's either, someone is either driving up to the farm, duh, or Lana might be riding her horse, but... Yeah, she showed up on horseback a lot, but yeah, she just was there. Actually, (laughs) yeah, this was weird. She just, it was like a Field of Dreams moment with her holding his homework. Yeah, it's a little bit weird, but yeah, I think Clark's, again, abnormally, abnormal can't speak abnormally yeah uh forthcoming with lana about the dream and she's all like can i tell you something sure i had this dream and it's really freaking me out what was it about a lot of things this girl oh no lana it's not like that she needed help let me guess you had to save her 
except I couldn't. Her name's Sarah, and she moved into your old house. When did you meet her? That's the thing. I haven't. And how could I be dreaming about her? Well, maybe if you walked me through the dream, we could figure it out together. You don't think I'm nuts? Clark, I think you have a lot of issues, but I do not think you have lost your mind. Okay, so where did you see her first? Crater Lake. You were there. Really? What were we doing? Nothing. Um, it's really hazy. Okay. Well, I have a better idea. Why don't we go see Sarah in person? And it's actually Lana who's like, let's go. Let's go check it out. And I kind of like that because I think Clark wanted to anyways, but I think it was a fun device to have Lana be the one who's like, yeah, let's go do this. And again, that's just her trying to insert herself into his life which is what we saw in the first season and a half he was trying to do into her life. And now that those positions are reversed, I just thought that was a fun little thing the show did. And it definitely makes the rest of the scene less awkward because I feel like if Clark was going to show up alone, he's not very good at delegating himself in subtle interrogations. So this upcoming scene, Lana being there was definitely an excellent buffer especially it being her former house it's less weird that they're showing up to meet the new neighbors yeah i, I think that's pretty concise writing which again the show doesn't always have uh, i thought this worked out pretty well yeah and clark's very awkward and just very excellent some very pointed questions like who are you and how did this happen and just no subtlety at all to his question of what's going on but we learned that uh, they were in a car wreck and her parents both died um, and then we get a scene of St. Christopher's medal that the uncle is wearing, who apparently is the patron saint of travelers. I don't know if the show told me that or I Googled it, but I have it in my notes. Clark did ask, um, and that was another awkward moment where, again, they go upstairs and, God, just the whole scene was pretty darn awkward to me. And Lana did her best to just pipe in and be like, yeah, this is totally normal. Just two teenagers showed up and we're interrogating you about your niece who is bedridden. But in their defense, I did have a moment of like, y'all just let them upstairs to see your bedridden niece who's in a coma. I mean, they're just teenagers, but I don't, the whole scene felt weird and I don't necessarily think it was writing or acting. It was just more like the actual setup of... right. Like, why are you all in this room? This is super weird. But yeah, he bends over and Clark does see the the patron saint symbol and he's immediately reminded of the red-robed figure. But Clark just didn't have any bedside manner. And I thought it was cute in the scene where uh, this back and forth teenage nonsense of the uncle was like, oh, well, your boyfriend over here. And Lana just like quickly covered and was like, Neither of them corrected him. Neither of them was like, oh, we're just friends. Lana just went with it to make it seem less awkward. Yeah. Because, I mean, again, you're right. It is it is an awkward scene. But I think it's more awkward the way Clark, I, I'm going to say Clark, not Tom, is, is playing it. He's just so aggressive. Like, he's already on board that it's the uncle. Like, I, I feel like he's already made that decision the moment they walked in. You know, and later they quote unquote put it together, but he's he's already thinking that. And then the whole thing with the it's time for Sarah's medication 
and you know he unlocks the medicine cabinet like why is it locked they lived alone and she's in a coma like who's coming in there to steal whatever medication it was yeah that was such a red flag the moment he had to unlock the cabinet was like wow could you be any more obvious yeah but then he again he did that in front of them like wouldn't you be like i'm sorry it's time for sarah's medication you need to leave like why would like the the fact that he even did that was just so awkward and unnecessary. So as much as I've been given the writer's credit till now, I think that that points a little bit uh, icky. But again, you got to make the show work. So I guess that they just had to do what they had to do. I have the same thought. They're all just making these amateur mistakes. Where Clark didn't attempt to like mosey into it he just kind of came in with an agenda and would have long pauses and then go what happened to her long pause <laughs> who are you it's like who, it's yeah. his house clark right <laughs> but also that guy like i had the same thought of like why are you just unlocking it in front y'all need to watch more horror movies <laughs> yeah. yeah just casually talk to people and, and you know slowly milk out. and you have superpowers clark you could have got a lot of information without anyone know you're snooping around. Like, you know, super speed some things or use your x-ray vision and read the bottle of the medicine. You know, it didn't have to be so uh, forthcoming with your, like, aggressive accusations. Because uh, I I think that the uncle should have been like, get the F out of my house. You know, it, the niceties of the, oh, they're here to visit the young girl kind of faded pretty quick in my mind. If they were British, the scene would have been entirely different. <laughs> just that we are two Austria. we both are american so i'm sorry i'm just having a moment of like well, they weren't polite and it's like well yeah. we are americans and i am i don't mean to offend on playing on the british politeness stereotype i apologize if that came off wrong i meant that as a compliment <laughs> fantastic all right anything else in this act before we move on so i watch most of these episodes with my partner um Tom and I thought the uncle's clothes were weird, which makes me feel like a judgy, mean person because he's just in like a red button down and khaki pants. But we thought his clothes were weird. Even towards the end of the episode, Tom was like, why are his clothes weird? I'm like, they're they're just normal dad clothes. And it's like, well, he's the uncle. And it just, I, it's like, even his clothes were awkward. So <laughs> I did not know that at all, but I'm not the type of person that would uh, so, yeah, we'll call that again to the audience. Did anyone else think that the uncle's clothes were weird enough to, like, clock them early on? Please let us know. Smallvillefancast at gmail.com. The thing is, like, they're just – it's just a button down in khakis. Like, that's very normal. But I, what might what might have been weird to us is that he always wore the same shirt every a day. Mm. But, yeah, his, what the nitpicking thing is his clothes were weird, and I think that's more of a me thing than the show <laughs> thing. Fair, fair enough. All right, let's read the third act here. Lex doesn't have access to do his job or Lionel's trust fully, it seems. Lionel pushes him to do the psychological evaluation needed for him to be fully instated. Clark and Chloe chat about Sarah. Clark is off to pull records from the public. Clark is off to pull public records to see if he can find any information on Sarah's family. Lana and Clark... <laughs> Lana and Clark pour over them in his loft... Sarah's parents were wealthy, we learned that, and she inherited all, but it's controlled by her uncle. Clark dozes off again, and Sarah comes to him in the dream. Sarah has found that she has some awareness and should have woken up, 
but her uncle is keeping her unconscious. Just then, the traveler takes her again. But in this moment, Sarah has now learned that she can communicate with Clark through dreams in a way to try to save herself. So here's an interesting question. Um, I think it's subtext. I don't know if it's textual. Do you think that Sarah would be invading the dreams of any person that was near to her, maybe around her age? But it, Or is it Clark specifically... Is it that he's Kryptonian, that she's able to do this? Like, why is Clark the one that's receiving these dream signals, do you think? Is it because he's Superman, or is it just sort of like a coincidence? I have the same question in my head, and I concluded that the episode doesn't give enough clues to really answer it. Because there's they never discuss meteor rocks in regards to the accident all we know is that she has been in a coma for now six years so i actually i do think there's a line later where chloe says something about where the car like wrecked in a ravine or a river that there were meteor rocks there Um, so i do think there was a connection at some point established that she might have been affected by the meteor rocks but it doesn't explain to me mount why isn't jonathan having the dreams why isn't martha having the dreams you know is it's only clark and then, like, when Clark is awake, Martha and Jonathan aren't getting them, even though Sarah's still in the coma. So it seems like Clark is the only one. So is it her exposure and he's Kryptonian? I, I, just, I mean, I don't know if it even is, if it's worth thinking about, but it just struck me as I'm, I was curious what you thought. I came to the assumption that it's probably just because he's from Krypton. Because... I, I, yeah, I did think about it like, you know, what if they had an angle where multiple dreams were interrupted, but then that probably would have been a longer episode. It is a 45-minute format. Maybe Kryptonians have a different brain waves than we do that could have caused this. I did appreciate, though, at the end of the episode when Sarah was like, I don't, I can't explain this. I, <laughs> I, I wish I could, but I don't even know why it was you. I, I don't know why. Just thank you for saving me. But... Are there right. future episodes where this happens, or is this just the one? This is the only one that I can recall from all 10 seasons. If, if Sarah comes back or if there's another situation somewhere, I'm not familiar with them off the top of my head. Maybe it's because Clark is just so tall and the brainwaves are different. I'm kidding. Exactly. I am not a scientist. It's, it's just the height. So in this, we get uh, uh, the opening scene where Lex comes into Lionel, interrupting a massage he's re- receiving, complaining about how he's locked out of the uh, – programs and stuff he needs to do his job and i have to take a moment here to talk about this behind the scenes thing i learned by listening to michael rosenbaum's podcast so if you're not familiar michael rosenbaum who plays lex luther um has a podcast that's called inside of you and it's where he interviews people celebrities and the nature of the show there have been quite a few uh smallville actors that have come on the show multiple times that's how i found the show i Really enjoyed the episodes that have people on it that I know. Usually if it's someone I've never heard of, I'm a little less inclined. But one of my absolute favorite things that I ever found out was he had Jonathan Glover on. He's had Jonathan Glover on twice. Both episodes are amazing and definitely should go listen to them. But Jonathan Glover shared that in this scene, he kept getting, he kept asking Michael Rosenbaum to do a sort of like, wow, as if he was impressed by Lionel's junk when Lionel gets up off the table and rewraps the towel around him. Like he asked him several times to try to do a little, huh, sort of reaction as if he's impressed by the size of, of Lionel's junk and Michael Rosamond wouldn't do it. And it cracks me up to think that Jonathan Glover would kept saying, just do it. Just, just go like, wow. Oh, my God. 
Love it. <laughs> That's I didn't know about that, but it's what you said. It's not like Glover asked once. It was several times. I'm like, come on, come on. <laughs> and in that yeah, scene. Yeah, do it, do it, do it. I mean, in the scene, that towel moves. And I was like, oh. Uh, but also in that scene is you don't see it because he's always in a suit. Glover is ripped. Dude is ripped. Dude is jacked. Um, You don't. The show is kind in that he is like mostly covered because. There are some moments, but like you, of course, you don't see anything. It was on. It's <laughs> this is an HBO. Um, hmm. but like that was the first moment where we really got to see like his traps, his shoulders, his biceps. I couldn't really see the triceps, but like his just his upper body, and I just didn't know he was ripped like that. My goodness. Yeah, I have no idea how old he was at the time of that show, but I'm guessing that I'm about the same age, or or maybe even younger. And I don't look anything like he looks. It's like, wow, I am just, that's what I could have looked like if I had tried harder, maybe. I mean, for those who didn't see the episode, he was Marvel ready. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he he's basically looks like Tom Welling. Like, he looks just ripped. Um, so good on you, Mr. Glover. Congratulations. Uh, but anyway, the point of this And I am is talking that, about his arms. Yeah. Okay. That was no innuendo. Yeah. Is that we learned that Lex doesn't get to be fully part of the team because he hasn't completed a psychological profile. Um, and then, there again, the show always tries to mirror storylines. So I think this is their attempt here to mirror the, the dreaming thing because Lionel says something about how dreams can reveal hidden dangers. Why have you refused to complete the psychological profile? Come on, Dad. You've never believed in that psycho babble, and neither do I. I believe that uh, personal, emotional problems uh, are bound to affect day-to-day decision-making. I think that dreams can often reveal hidden dangers, serve as a warning. Spare me the Jungian cliff notes, Dad. It's five sessions, Lex, that's all. Uh, and so Lex needs to do five sessions with a therapist before he can get fully signed off on and get all the access he needs to the job. So what do you think about this scene? What do you think about the setup? What do you think about the scene other than the awesome, again, behind the scenes stuff and Lionel eating that apple, which in itself seems like a sexual act to me? Yeah, the fruit was weird. It felt like a power play to continue on the layers of power playing happening during the happening during this scene. Uh, I mean, the fact that, yeah, Lionel has money, but he has to flaunt it like, oh, wow, he can have a personal masseuse and have it set up in his office because his office is so giant. And then he can just sit down and eat. It was very much like a demigod scene of like, oh, this is my place of power where I can also rest and you have to come in and ask for something. Sure. Yeah. I mean, their relationship is a game of chess that never ends. And this is another part of that chess game where they're both just always playing each other but the difference is when Lionel does it he does it with um opulence mm-hmm. Lex also is a very opulent person but in this scene the lighting was also cooler because in the mansion you get more of those warm lights there are the purples but you have more of those orange and roses and I noticed that in Lex's office it's all blues it is all light blues it's beautiful but his abode of power definitely plays on the cooler colors and i thought that was an interesting vibe to the room and then mm-hmm. thus the scene I mean, again completely agree uh but we do get our setup 
for the fact that uh, Lex uh, resists the idea that he has to take the psychological profile. He he you know says he doesn't need it, doesn't understand it, won't do it. Um, but more on that later, of course. Uh, then we got over to high school where Clark is dreaming of the girl next door, as Chloe says, because again, I love Chloe. And Clark's like, I think Sarah is reaching out to me through her dreams. And Chloe's like, well, you know, telepathy, <laughs> telepathy, reciprocity, I don't say that right, is increased during REM sleep or REM sleep. So again, we get our REM, the, the band connection. And yeah, so we learn here that the river where her accident happened was a known meteor site. So she thinks that that might be. So she thinks that it is her reaching out with her dreams more than Clark necessarily being receptive but it doesn't answer why jonathan and martha aren't so i think we i think we can assume that it's something to do with clark's kryptonian heritage is why he's the the more readily receptive to her projections and this is just another scene where wow if chloe was not a character in this show we would have added 20 minutes to this episode she shaved like she solved it yeah and we, we haven't seen this in a while but <laughs> uh it it was like Chloe's five minutes in the episode of like she gave a quit, uh she gave a quirky line because again like oh, uh girl your dreams <laughs> I thought that was I really yeah. liked Chloe in this episode like every delivery of her like one liners were great and then she just solved it for the Scooby Gang and was like yeah you need to go do this and I was like wait what <laughs> <laughs> that was fast uh wow yeah. mystery solved. <laughs> Yeah, that, in one of the earlier drafts of the uh, the rundown questions, there was one about, does Chloe turn away from a computer with the answer to this, this week's problem? It, it eventually became the, you know, does the small leap of logic, but it used to just be, does Chloe literally just turn away from a computer and have the answer? Because it does happen a lot in the show. But I, I love it because I love Chloe. Um, and I did note that on her computer, we can, if you kind of freeze frame it and look, there's an article that either she's writing or reading about magnetic rocks being found. And I wonder if this is a hint, because spoilers, if you haven't watched ahead, there's an episode coming up very soon called Magnetic, where a person gets meteor-powered sort of magneto-like powers, but it's also attraction as a whole because he can he uses it to make lana fall in love with him it doesn't make a lot of sense but i just wonder if this was like a cheeky little foreshadow oh that's interesting especially with the dialogue happening around chloe and computers and that ugh. i love chloe but there's just moments of like girl it is not your personal computer you keep <sighs> looking up it's just like <sighs> chloe get it together Sorry, that was some vague thinking, but just it's been interesting, especially at the start of the season, how we're having of the scenes that have been coming up of like, is it Chloe's computer or is it not? What is the privacy? What is the gray area? Yeah, I mean, and it's it, I mean, it's pretty much textual where Lionel comes in. He's like, these are my computers. And if there's anything on them about my family, you know, there's overt threats. And, you know, the, even the Van McNulty, he hacked her computer to get his list of victims there's definitely some lines that are probably being crossed here that Chloe, you know, get a laptop, just, I know this is early 2000, they're probably expensive, but just, just bite the bullet, buy a laptop, and then you're okay. Right. And just, yeah, sorry, this was a bit of a tangent, but like, even after all this, she is still looking stuff on by my computer and just leaving it open. It's like, okay. Lessons not learned. Um, I do also, I did note here that uh, there's, uh, I think Clark says, my faith in human kindness is not what it used to be. And then Chloe gives a look 
And I think, again, this is sort of back to the Lionel, the whole situation with her and Lionel manipulating and sort of blackmailing her. I think that's what that look is supposed to convey, but I'm not 100% sure. Uh, So we will move on. Uh, We cut to the Kent farm where Clark and Lana are going over the public records that they pulled. Uh, They find that Sarah's parents were wealthy and that as long as Sarah is under the care of her uncle, he has control of her finances. There's no proof, of course, that he's doing anything that's wrong. Clark is very tired and fussy. So Lana goes to put on another pot of coffee. And while she's away, he dozes off again. And Sarah comes back to the loft and is now talking directly to her. Uh, And we learn that she does have some awareness of her surroundings. She does think that she should have woken up, but that her uncle does something to keep her under. She kind of had an awareness that when Clark and Lana came to visit, uh, and then again, the traveler shows up and takes her yet again. This is the scene I mentioned where it's almost like they put Vaseline over the lens when it's just Sarah and Clark talking. There's a very clear sort of, I don't know if it's lighting, focus. There's there's a shift in the way the cinematography looks as soon as Lana leaves and Sarah shows up. It's it's very noticeable to me. Yeah, I know what you mean. Uh where the crispness isn't as there like it was with other scenes where there's a softness around the actors, especially with the lighting. And then in this moment, it was great to see that Sarah is getting some awareness when she, when she was like, I could hear you and Lana and she knows Lana's name. And it gave me a little bit of a chill when Clark was like, wait, you can hear us, but you're in a coma. So what's going on? And when Sarah just said, it's like being in a dark tunnel or stuck in a dark tunnel. That was just, oh, that gave me a chill. That sounds so horrible. This poor yeah. girl. And it's been six years, right? Uh, I don't remember the time table, but it has been, a, it has been quite a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we've shared some personal things on here before. I, I don't have like, um, it's not like an overriding ever present fear, but I do have a fear of being in like a, a medical situation where I'm aware and people don't realize it. Like that would be one of the worst possible things that could ever happen to probably to anyone, but I particularly have a fear of it. I also have that fear. So, yep. <laughs> yep. I might just be I've, universal then. Maybe. I've heard of a couple stories. I know it's not everyone, but I've heard a couple stories of the person does wake up from the coma eventually and is able to tell people like, no, I I could hear that. Yeah. I could feel the scalding tea being poured down my throat. I was like, oh, my God. No, no, no. Uh, yeah. uh, this this poor girl. And again, it goes back to like this weaving where back to what we we're talking about in the intro where they kind of continued the dream longer than you might have initially thought. And they're just weaving the story together. And overall, I thought the episode did a good job of this where it's. They could have kind of done the cliche of like, oh, Clark passed out and he has to do it. But it feels like Clark is solving it. And he is. He is solving it now both in reality and in the dream world with Sarah. And I'm glad they gave her that agency because it could have just been Sarah running around screaming, getting chased by this terrible thing and that's very tall. Uh, it's like the things in Lord of the Rings. The ring the wraith. Ring so like yeah. take a ring wraith, less like black liquid falling from them a little less metal but take a ring wraith and make it red ropes that's basically what sarah's running for from and i'm glad they gave her agency so she's helping clark solve this as opposed to clark doing it on his own because they, they could have gone that route so i have a question and and i'm asking this not knowing the answer but when i was watching this episode the thing that it made me think of was the village the m not Shyamalan movie are you familiar with it at all i didn't see the village so okay. 
I didn't get that feeling, but I did get some Stranger Things vibes from this one. Okay. Well, there is uh, – so I'm going to spoil the crap out of the village. Oh, go for it. So it's it's this, like, village. It appears to be, like, early colonial America. They're, you know, like, in the, just off secluded by themselves – and they are surrounded by these creatures and no one leaves and no one comes to the village. Like they're completely secluded. They have a perfect idyllic life other than that you can't go out in the woods or you'll be eaten by a monster. Well, somebody gets injured very badly. They need to go out and get some medicine. The only person they can agree to send is a blind girl because she cannot be um, hurt, I guess, whatever, by whatever's out in the woods, blah, blah, blah. So she goes out, spoiler, turns out they're in modern America. They're like in some big forest national park in this reservation that some rich person set up for them. And these people just didn't want their family to be corrupted by modern ways. So they have forced them to live in like these, you know, older times. So they get like modern medicine. They send the blind person because they won't realize what's going on necessarily. But the monster we learn is just the elders of the village who who dress up in these red robes and go out and scare people so they won't run away. And I think that the main character is the uncle of the main character. And I have to wonder, was there any sort of like spark of inspiration by M. Night from this episode? But I don't remember for sure if it's the uncle, but I think it's the uncle. Oh, that's interesting. And I kind of like that because... I apologize. I feel like I'm going to come off as a real jerk about clothing and fashion when I don't really know it. But like, so part of Nicholas Conroy's outfit that like I thought was awkward as weird is he's dressed kind of like a little old fashioned. Mm. It's just, uh, sorry, I I don't mean to be confusing or wishy-washy. It's just, I know it's fiction and I know it's clothing in a TV show, but I... And watching myself and tripping on my words because it's it can very easily come off as mean and offensive. And I really don't want to do that to anyone listening. Like, God forbid someone's like, you know what That's I'm trying to style. say? That's my style. Yeah, like, exactly. We're... Yeah. <sighs> So like, but, I mean, I, that's why you, I keep saying like, ah, I feel like a jerk. Cause like in all seriousness, like I don't want to be in that position right. of shaming people. But, but to, but to the point, this is a TV show. There is a costumer. Someone chose that out for him specifically. So it's not above the rub. Think that it was done on purpose that there, there was something either subtle or not so subtle about what they were wearing as part of their, their character. So it probably was a conscious decision to make them look a certain way. And that includes the dress. So maybe it was, you know, subtext that you're picking up on where someone like me is, you know, Luddite when it comes to fashion just washes over. I think if I leap from that, it's like Sarah's uncle's clothing. I mean, he kind of looks like someone else walking around, like everyone else, no big deal. But his clothing is so plain and simple. It's unsettling. Mm. Like the simplistic look of everything is what really was strange to me and kind of rubbed me the wrong way, especially when you find out they come from money. Just because you have money doesn't mean you have to dress like that. Not everyone's right. going to be a Luther, but it's almost like his plain clothing was to kind of make him seem less obvious that he could have had anything to do with this. Like, oh, he's just a regular guy. And I think maybe that's why it kind of like irritated me of like his look and everything of just, it just doesn't feel right. So maybe it was kind of like an M. Night Shyamalan kind of feel with that. 
may, may, may have been. That does bring up kind of a, a good question is that if, if Sarah's wealthy and the uncle controls all the money, why are they living in a farmhouse in Kansas? Like I know they're from like the neighboring place, the neighboring county or whatever, but why, you know, I think the show is supposed to tell us that he doesn't want to get caught and he's trying to keep, you know, questions. And if he was living this lavish lifestyle, it might be more obvious to just everyone that he's obviously, you know, keeping this money. But there's someone else you could go. You could be somewhere else, like, you know, Metropolis. Then, you know, I don't know. Seems weird. It does. All right. And then, oh, I did want to also note that it's kind of interesting in this episode because Lana is filling the PD role. Sort of, you know, she doesn't know he's Superman, but she's in on this sort of unnatural, supernatural sort of situation. You know, his dreams are being invaded by this girl and she says she believes him and she's helping dig through records. You know, normally that'd be like a Petey role. And then later it becomes a Chloe role. This is one of the few times I can remember where Lana is in that particular role. Um, and it was just interesting to get a glimpse of what their relationship could have been like if he had just been honest with her. You know, because again, once Chloe knows the secret, she falls into the sidekick role and it works well. Was there a version of the story where Clark tells Lana and it works out? I wish because, man, I want him to tell Lana so bad when they had that scene of just like, I can't remember if it was. I think it was season three, episode two, where they're having that conversation and she's like, you know, you don't get to make those decisions for me. And Clark just goes, you know, like, I can't be that guy for you. I've been trying to be that guy for you. I may or may not have shouted at my TV. Boo, Clark, you're boring. Because <laughs> I was just so upset in that moment. And Lana, I'm obviously a big fan of Lana. Just, you know, Lana right. being like, why can't you just let us try? And he's making these excuses. And I was like, ugh. Just tell her, please. Just I know you don't, but just freaking tell the woman. Oh, it's oh, I definitely have had mo I'm highly invested in this show, if you can't tell. I just want him to tell her, but I know. He, here we are. And I can't think of a moment where Lana's part of the Scooby gang. And the few moments she are, she's always parallel with Chloe, where usually they're the two working together. But I think right. this is the first time she and Clark are working together trying to solve something and honestly I think part of that reason is beyond the Lana and Clark in love with each other but they can't figure it out because they are teenagers life is hard I don't mean that like facetiously it's it is the writing and it's done well but um usually Lana can't be part of the Scooby gang because they're trying to save her from getting murdered yeah yeah <laughs> she's, she's usually, usually on the, the one flip that, side yeah she's the one in the coma speaking through her dreams so we'll go into the fourth act. Clark talks to Lex and gets info that Sarah, in fact, yes, she should have woken up. Clark goes back to Sarah's, steals a vial of the medicines that he, uh, she's been given by her uncle, but falls asleep on the drive home and wrecks the truck. Lana goes to Sarah, excuse me, Lana goes to Sarah's and confronts the uncle only to be drugged herself. So a lot of the dream stuff's over with. Now it's time for some action. So, you know, right at the beginning, I think uh, Clark Dream Warrior, because there is definitely a sort of a Freddy Krueger, uh, Nightmare on M Street 3 kind of vibe here. And we also get a little over-the-shoulder action with uh, Lex talking over his shoulder to Clark. I, I, I know we mentioned it in the rundown, but I think in the dream sequence when Lex tries to chop him in half with a sword is the other over-the-shoulder time that they got there. Um, So, are you familiar with the Arrow TV show at all? It's... It's like 10 years old now, but it's newer than this one. Unfortunately, no. Um, 
Tom watches it. I don't know it, that it's I, I don't. You, right. I, I started <laughs> I know off that watching it, it. It's a long show. Yes. But one of the things about that show I, I find kind of interesting is Felicity, who was supposed to be like a one and done character, but everyone loved her. So she became a, a you know, series regular. She's working like in IT at um, Queen Corp or whatever it's called, Queen Corp. And um, the era guy, I lost his name for a minute, the, the main character. What's his name? It's not Arthur, right? Oliver? No. Oliver. That's it. Okay. Isn't it? So Oliver goes to her and sort of like facetiously asks her for help, like trying to make it seem like it's an innocent thing. And then she's like, two episodes in, she's completely figured it out. She's like, you're not bringing me this stuff. So she kind of figures out who he is through that. Um, I almost like, I almost think that was a reaction to this. Because Clark keeps going to Lex, and, and and Lex is like involved in like helping like with the Ryan kid who's tele- telepathic and all that stuff. I feel like Clark keeps giving Lex information, asking for help, giving Lex way enough information for him to start figuring out stuff that's going on. But he never actually does. At least the show never says it explicitly. And I almost wonder if the Arrow thing was an intentional sort of we're not going to do that. Like we're going to show that this character is really smart because. She clearly can figure out in two episodes that something's going on. That's a really long tangent. I may cut all of that out, so you don't need to respond to that. No worries. I might ask. I don't know if Tom's going to remember that shit with Felicity, but he has. Tom has been diligent with the CW. I don't know if I'm going to. I don't know if I can. Like, I want to, but again, like. Arrow has like 10 seasons. The Flash has like eight seasons. And I watch some of the Flash with him. I'm like, I should start over. And I'm like. What time um, he is, or like Legends, just, I think Legends of Tomorrow, no, that's something different. But yeah, it's just reached a point where these CW shows are, uh, I don't know They're if I, I, I don't know. Oh, I will say, um, I'll say this at the end of the episode. We're not caught up, but we have seen the first few episodes of Superman and Lois. I don't oh, know if I- you and I talked about that. Yeah, I'm through the first, I think, nine. I'm really liking it. I think it's really good. We love it. Yeah. We freaking love it. All right. So anyway, so so Clark, Clark is talking to Lex. Lex gives him some information. Uh, Clark is now all in. He knows it's the uncle. He's he's made that leap. There's no doubt in his mind that the uncle's behind it. Uh, and he kind of notices the sword that he saw in his dream. And uh, he's like, is it some ancient samurai antique? And nope, it's actually a prop, a prop from Throne of Blood, which is basically a Macbeth retelling. Um, and Lex sort of like fakes attack, which, you know, very obviously reminiscent of the dream. But he already knows it's a fake sword at this point. So it seems kind of weird that Clark would react. I don't know. I guess if someone's swinging something in my head, even if it's like a nerf bat, I probably would react that way. But it just seemed, seemed like a weird thing to me. I don't know. That, that part didn't work on me. Clark was definitely spooked in that moment. Maybe it was the probably the lack of sleep. And that scene made me laugh because Lex so casually said, oh, no, man, it's just a prop from my favorite Kurosawa movie. Uh, a prop from a Kurosawa movie is mad impressive. He's talking like, oh, yeah, no, it's just something I got at, like, Target. Like, dude, it's from a Kurosawa movie. I don't care if it's a prop. I just that that, like, casual flex by Lex kind of what consumed me in that scene of like um my dad is a huge kurosawa fan so i grew up with those movies i probably should not have watched some of them that young like ah. throne of blood but yeah i just like oh lex is a kurosawa fan that makes me happy as if i didn't need another reason to love lex uh right. and 
I think so with Lex, we got the reality scene to parallel the dream scene. We got it with Chloe and the torch because in the dream, Chloe's like, you know, I'm going to be mature. I'm going to just do things that are facts. You know, time to put the weird wall behind me. Time to grow up. And then back in the office, I love how Chloe was like, you know, I wouldn't have taken it down if I had to. I want to go look for dusty files with you and Lana. I want to figure out this. Like, it's interesting. We're getting the parallels. It's like, right. We're seeing like their real personality. There's mm-hmm. that like that ten percent that was off in the dreams. We're now seeing it. I don't know if we got that with Lana or Petey though. Well, Petey doesn't really come back this episode, yeah. which bugs me. Give us more Petey. Well, shows we over, have... but give us more Petey. Yeah, we only get a few more episodes of Petey at all. He he leaves at the end of the season. <gasps> what? Yeah, I should have, I should have known that. Oh. I'm sorry if I spoiled that for you. I thought, yeah, I thought you you knew that big picture. You know, he leaves at the end of season. I believe it's the end of season three. He leaves, uh, and that's when Chloe steps into the best friend role rather than the love interest role. And I think the show is much better after that point. Um, so Clark goes back to visit Sarah, brings her some flowers, and then takes the opportunity to break into the medicine cabinet and take some of the medicine that the uncle has given her, so that he can, I guess, prove that he's drugging her against you know uh, incorrectly. And this is where I think that he uses his powers irresponsibly because that medicine cabinet looks like something you would get like at a big lots or at a yard sale. He easily could have like punched a hole in the back, tucked the medicine, turned it back around. And the uncle never would have known, or at least not for a long time, that he had been taken. But the fact that he opens it up, blatantly breaks the lock and leaves it open, the uncle that, that's why the uncle immediately knows what's going on. Like he really put Sarah's life in danger and then unknowingly puts Lana's in danger too, by being so blatantly obvious that he was doing this. I just think that's a horrible use of powers. I yelled at my TV during the scene, just like, dude, be smarter because it was just so brazen and so thoughtless of he, like all he could have at least shut the door to buy himself like five seconds. Uh, so I was also pissed because I'm I had a similar moment of like, uh, what is he going to do to Sarah now? It's just like, Clark, what are you doing? Yeah. I, again, just terribly irresponsible. For someone with all his powers, he, yeah. Anyway, so he's driving home. I have to ask why, because he zoomed over there. Why did he not just zoom? The, like, why is the truck involved at all? But whatever. He falls asleep, and we hear Bad Day by R.E.M. playing, and of course he wrecks the truck, totaling it, flipping it end over end, side over side. Um, So we got our our wrecked truck for the episode. Ding, ding, ding. Uh, And uh, I'm still not counting as Clark going unconscious, because I think he just fell asleep. But uh, yeah. And then Lana stops by the farm just for a quick Clark pick-me-up. And we get a scene with Martha and, and Lana, and Lana just asks, like, what, what is it about Clark? Why is he pushing me away? And I love this scene. Again, I love Annette Tool. I think she's just one of the unsung heroes of the show. But I really like Lana just coming out and saying, you know, can you tell me why Clark's not, you know, reciprocating? And Martha, who we've seen time and time again, are are is you know the cheerleader for this relationship she really wants lon and clark to be together and i just thought it was an interesting kind of a position to put them in to have them have this conversation and then of course we get the drama with jonathan going quick quick you know it's clark where lana gets to see this uh there's just a lot of elements that are wrapped up really well in this scene that i really liked i love that scene i actually almost chose that scene for the cold open Ooh, okay that was my initial choice because 
It was so good. It's not a long scene, but it didn't need to be because, you know, Kristen and Annette, I think, have great chemistry. And the scene, they, they're enough for that scene. A lot didn't need to be said because so much has already been unspoken in the background, picked up by the audience between them mm-hmm. and what's been going on. I I love that scene because it was Lana and Mom. It was Martha. Um, I don't think we see many conversations between the two of them as well. So. One, it was a fair question on Lana's part. Two, we don't, we just don't get that between them. Lana doesn't, um, you know, Lana, big spoiler, I'm sure you all know, really has no parental figures, especially at this point and with what went down with her biological father. So I'm glad they gave us that moment where Lana could have a parent moment, especially with Martha, the best, best mom. And what was I going to say besides that? Oh, so you, actually, well, I, sorry to interrupt, but I, that just made me think that I, I, a way of reading that scene that I wasn't, that it's almost not like Lana was going to Clark's mom. It's as if she was going to her own. Like she's asking for like motherly advice about a relationship she has. I I, I don't even know if you meant, to, meant that or not, but it made me think that's a way to read that scene that I didn't. I, th- I actually like that better. She's going to to a motherly figure looking for advice not necessarily the mother of her, the boy that she's interested in. Mrs. Kemp, could I ask you something? Of course, Lana. Do you know why Clark pushed me away? Metropolis changed Clark. He's not the same boy he was when he left this spring. Jonathan and I are trying to figure it out too. I guess I just, I feel like if I stay in his orbit long enough, he'll finally decide to open up. Yeah, and honestly, who else could she really ask that? I mean, it technically she could ask anyone. She could ask Lex, but we know what that answer is going to be. We She could ask Chloe, but oh my gosh, we do not want to go there. They still... No got some stuff to work out they're teenagers it's hard being a teenager martha's really the only one who's going to give her an honest answer i think uh and it's just not jonathan kent's territory i apologies for the gender stereotypes but uh that's not jonathan's wheelhouse yeah (laughs) and then you know and martha can't be honest because she knows that clark was under the influence of red kryptonite but she can't say that obviously um so yeah, I just I think it was a well designed scene that when when you you have all the history of these characters and you put them in this sort of new position and it sort of works because of that history. But you know you got people who who want to tell the truth and want these characters to be together but can't share. I just think it's 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 good drama. The yeah. show isn't always good drama. I thought that was good drama. I think so too because in that moment Martha couldn't answer the question, but she could still in a motherly way make Lana feel better, you know, try to make Lana understand, honey, you didn't do anything wrong. It's you're not a bad person or anything or and Clark isn't necessarily a bad person either. This is just it's complicated and everyone's tired of hearing the word complicated. Yeah. Absolutely. I just want to give them a hug. Both <laughs> of them. <laughs> So uh, Lana and Martha run out and find Jonathan, who who has pulled Clark from a truck that is absolutely effing totaled. And Jonathan's like, hey, he's fine. I think he's just asleep. Because you got to think from Jonathan's point of view, that's confusing because he's seen Clark exploded and shot. And, you know, he's fine most of the time. 
but here he's not. He's unconscious, but he doesn't have any injuries. And I just, if I was Lana, there's no way I wouldn't call 911. I think she tries to, and Jonathan, like, you know, kind of begs her off, but there's no way I would see that truck and see Clark and not call an ambulance at that point. Honestly, Lana's reaction to that moment might be like the most unbelievable part of the show, the episode, even with the dreams, because like Lana saw the truck. She didn't. It's not like Lana couldn't see any of it. She could see that the truck was flipped and that is devastating. And Jonathan just being like, oh, he just hit his head. It's like we know Lana did not believe that Clark just hit his head. Like, excuse you, Jonathan Kent, try harder. But Lana just lets it go because this has happened before. And I mean, the Kents are broke because their trucks are always getting totaled. Seriously, like that was the thing that was most funny about the the dream sequence truck is that they are going to get a new truck soon because they wrecked this one again, which is, again, why we count that in our rundown or in the scoreboard, because it happens all the time. Honestly, Tom was like, wow, they wreck a lot of trucks in this show. And then we were like, who's the sponsor of the season, Dodge? I, I can't remember if it's a Dodge or a Ford truck, but it's just like, what is their insurance rate? It would have to, have to be through the roof. How can they even get a car at this point? And also, also the dream truck, well, uh, that did not even last Small the day. town politics. They, they must know somebody. Someone is making a killing yeah. off Kent's and truck. So Lana then goes to Sarah's herself, and uh, she sees the uncle about to give her a dose, when, and he turns it on her, knocking her unconscious. So we do have an actual going unconscious person for the episode, uh, which is uh, Lana. All right, anything else about this before we move into the final act? Yeah, I just want to know if we can go more than two episodes without Lana almost getting murdered by someone. And that was really bold of the uncle, like that moment where Lana was very brave and I'm glad she stepped up. And But the uncle retorting, being like, oh, I don't want to kill Sarah, but I can kill you. It's like, wow, you very quickly decided to murder a teenager. And I did wonder, has he murdered anyone else in covering this up? Because, I I mean, yeah, he jumps to murder really quick. He had no reservations. He was, like, super ready to kill Lana. And I was like, what the hell? I don't like this guy. <laughs> yeah, don't mess with a man and his money, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. All right. So if you don't mind reading our summary for the final act, and we'll, we'll wrap things up. Clark encourages Sarah to stand up for herself, and together they defeat the Traveler. After that, Clark awakens and zooms off to save Lana from Sarah's uncle. And by doing so, he knocks him out. That way, there's no fire started. Lex agrees to see a psychiatrist in the end when talking to his father, and Lana and Clark chat in the loft. So one of the things about this episode that that doesn't quite work for me is that the Traveler is just Sarah's fear manifested as this sort of metaphysical force. It It isn't actually anything. That, it's not like the uncle is projecting his you know, mental state, his astral projection as this dream warrior. It's just that Sarah's afraid of him or has fear of him. And it has sort of just become this anthropomized form of, I don't know, personification of that fear. That part to me is just kind of like dumb. The symbolism for this was also weak for me. I'm specifically thinking of the patron saint of travel, St. Christopher, where, again, Clark sees the necklace and uh, Nicholas goes, oh, it's uh, St. Nicholas. And actually, Clark is the one who goes, oh, yeah, patron saint of traveling. And Lana looks at him like, shit, you know that? (laughs) 
I mean, if the uncle wore that necklace all the time, then Sarah would have seen it. But he specifically says, yeah, I wear it and I pray to it every day that Sarah may wake up. But if he started wearing the necklace after the coma, how would she know of it? I just I like went along with the leap of like, okay, the symbolism and then her fear personified is the figure in the robes. Kind of like looks like the robes St. Christopher wears, but even that's a stretch and. You know, I did go to Catholic school, so that might be something I easily came to. But if you were not raised in Catholicism or Christianity, um, I'm aware if they're they're the same thing, whether or not you know what I mean. Uh, yeah. How how could you know that? It, it just it kind of felt weak, to be honest, that they made those leaps. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting having a bad guy that Clark can't actually just punch. Like that's that's an interesting concept. And then Sarah is actually the one who has to be the superhero here. You know, she has to come to her real, you know, her full agency, and and she's the one who actually defeats him. Then Clark, Clark kind of helps with the X-ray vision at the end. I, I like that as an ending. I just I don't know that it it works here. Like the concept in my mind played out better than the execution, but you know, it, it happened. Uh, so Clark wakes up, rushes off to find Lana, uh, finds. So okay. The uncle is dumb. He sets up this fake crash that he's going to like kill Lana in with the with a gasoline trail back, which again, very classic villain here. But then he just takes the gas can and throws it over his shoulder into the woods. It has your fingerprints on it. It's by the the explosion. Lana's purse and phone are still at your house. No one's going to even in Smallville, who has like apparently the most inept cops in Emmy in the world. They're not going to buy this. You're 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 not a good murderer, which I guess maybe that's a good thing. I don't know, but it fortunately his plan can't come to fruition because Clark shows up, throws him against a tree, knocks him unconscious, which is why we kind of have that in the rundown. There's never any real conclusion. Like, I mean, he saw Clark zoom out of nowhere. Clark threw him, you know, forty feet into a tree. He kind of exposed himself in his powers, but we don't ever hear, like, the uncle didn't die. He doesn't tell anybody. He doesn't lose his memory. It just is a sort of a left hanging. Why doesn't this guy start telling people that Clark has abilities? They never bring him up again. And as I said, like, I feel like the seams between Clark is in the dream world and then he's awake. I thought those were done really well, but... Where this episode falls short is pacing moments in the real world. Like, oh, wow, Chloe solved that immediately. What's the point of the next 30 minutes? Or like, again, with the uncle just coming to just escalating things, he doesn't take any time between things. Also, he just parked Lana's car and put her in the driver's seat. So, like, the car didn't hit anything. It's just parked (laughs) on the shoulder. It would clearly be arson. He just doesn't. I guess he has so much money from his family, he doesn't care. But uh, yeah, he got good lawyers for that. The whole thing was, it was try harder. Just try harder. If you're going to murder someone, be better at it. Yeah, you will get caught. We will make a podcast about you and talk about how you could have done a better job. (laughs) Yeah, someone certainly would need to. We get the scene then between Lex and Lionel, which we did as our cold open. So we kind of already gone, went through that. But Lex comes and says, All right, I'll do it. I'll go see the psychiatrist. Uh, Lionel asks who, and when uh, Lex tells him, he's like, oh, yeah, very credentialed. She's written a couple books. I noted that as suspicious, and if you, you know, I won't spoil it for you since you're watching along, but you'll we'll find out later that there's a connection between Lionel and the and the doctor. I just find it a little bit, 
I think it was kind of funny that they had him recognize that name because I mean Lionel's obviously a well-read person and he's you know this multi-billion or billionaire multinationalist but that doesn't mean he knows the name of random psychiatrists working in Metropolis. I'm so the fact right. that they it's had him name check her, name. yeah, was a little bit suspicious in my mind. Yeah, and it, it, this tone of voice reacting that name of like that familiarity or this this kind of like cheekiness to it immediately. Thank you for confirming my instincts of like, okay, this character is going to be important. It's just not some mm. doctor he's saying. A- again, yeah. they're forever game of chess. For, forever, a hundred percent. We go to the Smallville Medical Center where we see Sarah, who's lying in a hospital bed. So I'm not counting her being in her home bed as in a hospital bed, but she's clearly in a hospital bed here. And she, very perceptive for someone who's been in a coma for six years, really just picks up the heart of the whole Clark Lana situation. And she says, "I'm curious to hear your perspective. What'd you see? Someone who's clearly in love, but who resists it." Lana, right? Clark, take it from someone who's been trapped for six years. If you love her that much, don't push her away. It's a long and complicated story, Sarah. I only know what I saw. So everyone's telling Clark to let Lana in, but uh, Clark being Clark just can't see to it. Uh, and then we get our basically uh, our final scene back at the loft with Lana and Clark as REM's At My Most Beautiful begins to play. Lana, again, thanks Clark for saving her. Again, she's not been murdered now multiple times because of Clark. And uh, I, I like Lana. She says, I felt like the girl next door again, which I thought was kind of a cute thing. She then leaves. I count this as a long way to have a short conversation because she's not the girl next door again. She lives with Chloe uh, somewhere further away. Uh, and then we get our last little jokey line where she invites him to go swimming and Clark immediately jumps to, we can't go skinny dipping. And she's like, skinny dipping? Maybe in your dreams. Which was kind of funny. Oh yeah, real smooth of him. So I know I, I kind of blasted through that because we're running a little bit long, but I want to give you your full time. Was there anything in this final act that you wanted to talk about? No worries. I swear, I know my episodes go long, but I did try to be short on this one. I, I, I really promise I'm trying, guys. Some of those tangents were mine. Okay, fair. that's true. We we both are good at this. It is a talking yes. thing. But also when Sarah was in the bed talking with Clark, thanking him, being like, I, I don't know how this happened. I really appreciate it. Finally, we don't get that a lot with the secondary characters. Like, we understand the elements of Smallville. We understand the meteor rock. So that suspension of disbelief is well established in season three. I'll give the show that. But it was kind of nice to hear Sarah be like, I'm so I can't explain this. I absolutely can't explain this. I don't know why it was you. I don't even know how I did this, but thank you for saving me. And her adorable line of like, I may have been the girl in your dreams, but it's not me. Do you remember what she said? I remember her saying that, but I don't remember the exact words. But this will be where I drop that audio in. I may have been there, but... Lana's the girl in your dreams. Yes, excellent. So everyone else just heard it. I thought that line was so cute where, uh, you know, playing on like, oh, the the girl of Clark's dreams. And it's like, you know, I might have I literally been the girl in your dreams, but you need to go talk to Lana. I thought that, oh, mm-hmm. that was real cute. And um, there was something else. Oh, yeah, the REM, like it worked for me, but it didn't. You're like, oh, ha, ha, REM, get it? It's a whole episode about dreams, but yeah, I think it was too on the nose in some points. 
Yeah, that's something that that's like a first draft. Like in the writers' room, someone's like, "Hey, let's do an episode about dreaming." I know, and then everyone's like, "Yeah, that's great." And then someone eventually should have circled back around and be like, "You know, actually, let's don't do that." And they just they never got past that part. I mean, it wasn't bad. I didn't hate the episode because of that. I don't think it did anything negatively, but I just think it, it's more cutesy of an idea than it actually played out in the episode. Yeah. All right, so any final thoughts overall? Anything we didn't cover you want to circle back to or just any overall opinions about this episode? I think that's it. Okay, totally fair. Again, we, we need to cut time where we can, so we will cut it there. I just think it's interesting that we have another innocent person who knows Clark is super-powered, and he seems totally okay with him just going off into the world, knowing his secret, and trusting that they will never use it against him, and yet he won't, won't tell the people most important to him in his life. It would be different if Clark, like, never shared. Like, you know, it happens a lot. People find out a secret and then they die or they lose their memory, right? But there is that becomes a confidant of Clark. And there's a there's becoming more and more people that fit that role. I It, it makes it just keep, keeps piling on weight onto the it doesn't make any sense that you won't share it to the people that you love anymore. Like, it's just getting to a ridiculous level. So here's just one more example of that. Yeah, and for sure. Sh- in line what we're talking about in previously of, you know, is it too late to talk to Lex? Well, so many people know and so many people met Cal. It's too late to go back. Like, honestly, in season two, we had a couple moments of that. But at this moment, especially after season three, episode one, it is too late. The consequences are permanent. I'm sure I'm going to see more of that as I keep watching the show. And it's almost like he doesn't care anymore. I mean, with Sarah, Sarah approached him technically. So I, I give Clark some leeway on that. But all the other things, it's like, dude, you've already come home to the farm to your parents tied up. Like, that's the people you love, damn it. <laughs> yep. Always is. All right. So uh, as always, I like to look at, these ep- look at these episodes through the lens of the man versus Superman. I think that is the thesis overall that the show is sort of trying to explore, at least in these early seasons. So do you have any thoughts on this episode through that lens of how does this episode show us the man versus Superman conflict that Clark has? I think it shows it and, you know, we keep seeing this. He immediately and wholeheartedly believed that he had to save someone. I mean, even Jonathan told him, you don't have to do this. And I think Martha said, it's not your job to save everyone. But in Clark's defense, she did approach him in his dreams, even if she didn't mean to. It's not like she was in Jonathan's dreams or anything. But he really jumped full. He had to do this. And when watching the episode, I wondered if it ties back to the prophecy has scared him. You know, he's Mm. desperately fighting the whole, like, I don't want to rule mankind. I don't want to be spoken about as if I am not of mankind. I am raised by Jonathan and Martha like even his parents are like you know you're raised by us you're raised by humans you're growing up with these human values we want you to have a good moral code so I wonder if part of that whole just like I have to do this is tying into him fighting that feeling and I mean, he was terrified at the end of season two I would have been too yeah absolutely uh, so as for me I think this is kind of an interesting episode because we almost get we almost get the marriage of the two because Clark and Lana work together to solve this problem. If, if Lana was in on it, then he would have kind of had both. He would have been able to have the girl next door. He would have been able to have that relationship. He could have still fulfilled his role as Superman, but he still refuses to let her in. So she doesn't quite 
get to that level. And by not sharing it, he puts her in danger. Because if she knew he was super, she probably wouldn't went off to to confront Sarah on her own. She would have waited, knowing that Clark is probably okay and you know will wake up and you know be able to handle things and not put herself in danger to do so. But I I think circling back to what I said earlier. I think maybe the reason Sarah was able to communicate with him is because of his Kryptonian heritage, which puts that into is only because he's Superman that he was put in these positions. Like if it had been a normal person, he wouldn't have got the brainwaves. He would know nothing about it. And they would have lived happily, sadly ever after next to, you know, next door to these people doing awful things. So I think the show is sort of hinting at or, or, or showing us again, there's the dream. Okay. I just thought I had this thought. It's not well thought out. But early on, we have the dream sequences where Clark sees these dreamlike interactions with people who are a little bit off. And in the waking world, we have almost a similar, we have almost like a dreamlike, what if he and Lana could do this together, but it's just as much, much fiction as the dreams were. Again, I didn't think that out very well. I'm sure it's not a metaphor that holds up, but we're going to leave it there and move on. <laughs> so Maria, thank you again for joining me. Really appreciate having you here. What is your pass the torch question for our next co-host to answer? Do you think caffeine works on Clark Kent? Ooh. All right. Fantastic. I look forward to hearing what next week's co-host has to answer for that. Uh, Before we go, Marie, where can people find you? If they want to chat with you online, talk to you about your opinions about this show or anything in the world, where can people find you? So my handles on social media are Franzibolt. That's F-R-A-N-T-Z-O-B-O-L-T. I don't know if I ever explained this in a previous episode, but my last name is Franz. One of my best friends passed young, but she called me Francibold. And I've just kept the nickname ever since. So Francibold, Francibold, F-R-A-N-T-Z-O-B-O-L-T. My Twitter is private, but by all means, request a follow. Like, don't let that stop you. It's, it's, it's just private. It's no big deal. Totally. I would love it if you followed me. I'll follow you back. So go ahead and request that. And uh, and I don't have any projects personally, but a good friend of mine from high school, their handle is Games by B. That is B-E-E, like the animal. We have we have been friends since high school through thick and thin. Wow. Uh, kind of like Clark and Chloe, I guess. No, that's a terrible weird night. Neither of us are like any of those people. But uh, yeah, we have been friends for a really long time. And I'm really happy to shout out their Etsy shop. Again, Games by B. It is handmade and custom TTRPG accessories. Um, look, you're thinking what I'm thinking. I already got a dice tray, Maria. I already got a dice bag. Yeah, me too. I know, but still check them out. Like, I know we all have the accessories, but B's work is phenomenal. They have trays in their Etsy shop. They do have large bags with matching tray sets that do uh, collapse. They also sell small bags with tray sets. They have dragon scale bags. They have smaller bags that they make that are for like Uh, playing cards whether it's tarot or just a deck of cards b also does custom orders so for example they have recently been doing dragon scale bags there are some that are fabric and then there's some of metal like doing chainmail work Mm -hmm. if you have a certain design in mind give b a message they will do a custom order they're happy to do that and their work is impeccable and for what it's worth i've also bought from b shop i have one of their bags for cards and I love their work so much that I actually bought one of the Dragon Scale bags as a gift for a family member. That nice. So, well, well, role playing games and role playing game accessories are near and dear to my heart. Uh, so I absolutely endorse this as well. And I will put the links in the show notes to their shop. So anyone who's listening who is interested, just click on the show notes and we'll take you right to the shop. Excellent. Thank you. 
Oh, of course, my pleasure. Uh, as for me again, Michael at the RPG Academy, everything I do can be found there except for this show, which has its own Twitter, email, and uh, Facebook. So email smallvillefancast at gmail.com. Uh, by the time this episode comes out, we will still be building up to a catacon, which is the gaming convention that I run every year in November. It's also in the opening credits that I put together because, of course, why wouldn't I do that? Uh, so if you're in or near Dayton, Ohio in November or willing to travel to Dayton, Ohio in November, as of right now, you know, Delta variant and some other things are kind of scary, but we're still looking at having an in-person convention in November. Come hang out, play some games. Even if you've never played before, we'll make it fun. We'll, we'll teach you some new games. And I'm also a burgeoning game designer. I ran some playtest of a game I'm designing that's all about bad action movies. Not the bad kind, the good kind of bad action movies and role-playing games. And I'm very hopeful that it will be coming to Kickstarter soon, if not this year, early next year. So that's another way you could uh, support me. Uh, and... All that out of the way, after the end credits, stay for the scoreboard. Farm to Fable is a Smallville rewatch fan cast and is not officially affiliated with DC Comics, Warner Brothers Television, the CW Network, or any other owners of Smallville and or its related source materials. As such, these companies retain sole ownership of all symbols, images, names, logos, and other proprietary material related to Smallville. Our use of logos, images, names, likenesses, and sound clips are being used under the Fair Use Guidelines. Our logo was created by Michael Waldschlager II. You can find Michael on Twitter at LoserMLW. Farm to Fable is written, edited, and produced by me, Michael Ross, with additional input by weekly co-hosts as credited in each episode's show notes. And now, let's check the scoreboard. Total number of vehicles wrecked. We're now at 44 with Clark wrecking the Kent truck after falling asleep behind the wheel. Total number of times a person has been knocked unconscious. We're now at 103 with Lana going unconscious after being drugged by Sarah's uncle and then Sarah's uncle being tossed into a tree by Clark. So looking at our main cast, Lana has now been knocked unconscious 12 times. Lex still at 11. Clark still at 7. Jonathan still at 7. Chloe at 6. Petey at 5. Martha at four, Lionel at two. Total number of times someone goes to the hospital. We're now at 42 with Sarah going there after awakening from her uncle's drug-induced coma. Looking at our main cast, Petey's been to the hospital four times, Chloe three, Lana three, Lionel twice, Martha twice, Jonathan Kent twice, Clark just the once, and Lex just the once. And finally, the total number of times Clark tells or shows someone other than Lana his abilities, we're now at 47 with a giant asterisk.